I'm going to tell you something. I mean, none of us were like this before. I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to prove you wrong. Mm -hmm. I like this. This is sacred ground. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. I just want answers, and I, but I want the truth. Does he have a crush on me? No. Figures. Hearing is seeing. Hearing is seeing. From American Public Media, this is an APM Reports documentary. The high school graduation rate in the United States is at an all-time high. Still, one in four kids from low-income families don't finish. We got real-life issues going on, then you're AX plus B. No one ever asked me how my day was going. No one asked me if I was hungry or if my home situation was okay. No one asked. No one cared. Each student that comes in, we, we're going to find a way to love them. And these students were not loved anywhere else. Like, they want us to be something, and they believe in us. Coming up, what it takes chasing graduation at high-poverty high schools. It's early in the morning. It's just about two minutes past six. I'm Stephen Smith, and this is my colleague Emily Hanford. And I'm at Booker T. Washington Senior High School in Miami. Emily recorded this in her car in the school parking lot. I'm here early because teachers and the principal have all told me that lots of kids come to school early and stay late because this is a safe, good place for them to be compared to home and their neighborhoods. Here's one of the stories Emily heard from a teacher. His name is Anthony Jennings. Every morning when I would come in and open my classroom door, I just had a sense that something was amiss. I couldn't tell exactly what it was, but I knew something wasn't right. And then one morning, when Mr. Jennings opened the door... I could see something move, just like a shadow or something move across the room. It could have been a frog. You sometimes see frogs in the classrooms and hallways here. But it wasn't a frog. There was a kid who was camping out. He was using my room as a place to stay. And he had a family, but I guess every night the family would split up and everybody was responsible for finding their own place to stay or sleep. Emily gets out of her car in the early morning light and walks into the school. There are a couple of girls sitting on benches near the cafeteria and a security guard who's here to greet the early arrivals. Hey, Lala. All right. This is Patricia Preston. And I work at the T, Booker T, down here in Miami. There's always a security guard here to open the school early. It's a little thing that can make a big difference at a school like this. The girls on the bench, for example. Ms. Preston says they stay at the homeless shelter. There's a bus that brings students to school from the shelter, but these girls don't want to be seen on that bus. So they won't be embarrassed, you know what I'm saying? Ooh. Booker T. Washington Senior High School is in a neighborhood called Overtown. It's less than two miles from the restaurants and luxury condos of downtown Miami, but it's a long two miles. Nearly a third of families in Overtown live on less than $15,000 a year. It's almost seven now, about 30 minutes until first period. Ms. Preston has her walkie-talkie in one hand. With the other hand, she grabs a chair, plops it down at the middle of the school entrance, and gets ready to check IDs as students arrive. She decides to pull up some music on her phone. Her playlist is all 60s and 70s. The Jackson 5. The whole Jackson clan when Michael used to be black. And some Otis Redding. Just make this my home. Students are streaming in now. There are about a thousand. Ms. Preston seems to know them all. Still, you gotta flash your ID or you get a mouthful from Ms. Preston. Jeez, why we gotta go through this every day? Y'all see me sitting here and say, well, y'all, this lady gonna ask for my ID. Y'all don't see me, big as I be. Emily's been spending time at Booker T. Washington because it's what's known as a high poverty school. That means more than 75% of the students are eligible for free or reduced price meals. At Booker T., more than 90% of students fit into that category. There's been a big rise in the percentage of schools like Booker T. One in four public schools in America is a high-poverty school. That's double what it was back in the late 1990s. Going to a school where nearly all of your classmates are poor puts you at a huge disadvantage educationally, particularly when it comes to the most basic educational outcome, getting a high school diploma. And a high school diploma is a bare minimum these days. If you don't graduate from high school, you're more likely to live in poverty, to be sick, to depend on government services, and to end up in prison. Without a high school diploma, you're even likely to die younger. From APM Reports, this is What It Takes, Chasing Graduation at High Poverty High Schools. 
In the United States, the high school graduation rate is at an all-time high. More than 80% of students entering as freshmen get diplomas four years later. And if you're from a middle or upper income family, you have a 9 in 10 chance of graduating from high school. But a stubborn and large contingent of students is not getting through. A quarter of kids from low-income families don't finish high school. This hour, we're going to look at what those kids are up against and what it would take for schools to get more students to finish. We'll visit a school in California that literally chases students down to get them to class. But first, we're going back to Booker T. Washington Senior High School in Miami to tell you about an experiment underway there to try to prevent kids from quitting school. Here's Emily with the story. If you want to find the students most likely to drop out of high school, this is the place to look. When I want to write this actual equation, I have f of x. Algebra 1, ninth grade. More students fail Algebra 1 than any other class. Now, do we think I put that minus 3 in my exponent or outside? Outside. Outside. Why outside? In this algebra class at Booker T, there's an eager bunch clearly getting it. But there's also a bunch who look confused, distracted, even a little pissed off. Math is, with me, it's a love and hate relationship because sometimes I understand it. Most times I don't. That's Dominique. After the lesson, he joins a small group of students at the back of the classroom to get extra help from a tutor. It is f of x. What kind of function? Negative. What kind of function? Negative. It's not negative. Kids end up in this tutoring group because they're in danger of failing algebra. And that's a big warning sign. They may drop out. This is ridiculous. Research shows you can predict with a remarkable degree of accuracy exactly who won't make it through high school by looking at three things. Researchers call them the ABCs. Absences, behavior, and course performance. A ninth grader who comes to school less than 90% of the time, has two or more behavior infractions, and has a failing grade in a math or English class, that kid has a less than 25% chance of graduating from high school. The experiment underway at Booker T is to take all that predictive data, put it together, and see if you can use it to actually prevent a kid from quitting school. This is a list of every student who has, in some period today, been marked absent or tardy. This is Maria Stobel. The list she has in her hand has about 200 names on it. That's 20% of the students at Booker T. Stobel has an office at Booker T, but she actually works for Johns Hopkins University. Researchers there are heading up the dropout prevention experiment. They call the experiment Diplomas Now. So I usually just sit right here. Ms. Stobel is sitting on a bench in the courtyard where students eat lunch. She's looking for kids who are marked absent but are actually here. Lunch is the place to find them because some kids show up just to eat. It might be the only meal they have today. This kid was counted absent. Let me look. Ransel, did you come late today? Huh? Did you come late today? Yeah. What happened? Ransel says he woke up late. But a bunch of other students on this list, they're nowhere to be found. A lot of these names are repeats, like every other day, every day. After school, Ms. Stobel's list ends up in the hands of a group of 20-somethings. Uh, my name is Kayla Nicholson. I'm going to make attendance phone calls. Kayla is a volunteer for City Year. City Year is kind of like a domestic Peace Corps. Recent college graduates who spend a year in a high-poverty school working as tutors and mentors. There are eight of them at Booker T as part of Diplomas Now. That tutoring you heard in algebra, that was city year. And at the end of the school day, the city year team calls the parents of the ninth graders who never showed up today. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been But they don't actually reach many parents. The person you have called is unavailable right now. They had more luck getting through at the beginning of the school year. You know, at this point in the year, people's numbers have changed or the numbers we have are disconnected. That's a sign of poverty right there. Middle-class parents, they'll have the same phone number for years. But when you're struggling to put food on the table, sometimes the phone bill just doesn't get paid. Hi, is this the parent of Pedro? The city year team does get through to a handful of people. But it's not always the student's parent. In one case, it's a guy who runs some kind of group home. In another, it's an aunt. She says her nephew missed school because of the rain. The rain? Robert Balfans, the Johns Hopkins researcher who helped design diplomas now, he's heard this one before. On the one hand, he says, it sounds like a pretty lame excuse. On the other hand, many kids don't have rain gear. They don't have umbrellas. If it's pouring out, it means they will be torrentially soaked. 
one of the greatest acts of grace I've ever seen in my life was at an inner city place at a bus stop. It's torrential rain. There are kids there after school waiting for their bus, thoroughly soaked to the bone. Somebody pulls up, opens up the back of their trunk, hands them an umbrella, and drives off. Because like they just do not have rain gear. When you're in poverty, you don't have rain gear. Ballfan says dropping out of high school is typically the result of many things that add up. Little things, like not having rain gear, and big things, like failing algebra. Almost every student, rich or poor, runs into problems along the way in school. But when something goes wrong for a kid in a middle or upper-income home, their families can typically help. If a kid is struggling, they can get them a psychologist, they can get them a tutor, they could have their uncle that was off the hook and then recovered talk to them and help them figure out how to do it. In high-poverty environments, those supports aren't available, and if the school doesn't provide them, they don't get provided. The idea at the heart of the dropout prevention experiment at Booker T is to identify the students who are having problems and deliver solutions before a bunch of unsolved stuff leads to a kid quitting school. I just want to start by... Thank you guys for coming. This is Maria Stobel again, the one who was checking attendance at lunch. She also runs this weekly meeting. Teachers and staff get together to talk about the ninth graders who are struggling. So up here is her total absences for last year. Ms. Stobel has prepared a PowerPoint with information about each student. The information comes from something called the Early Warning Indicator System. Researchers built it to collect all the data about a student's absences, behavior, and course performance in one place. When you put it all together like that, you can see, right there in the data, that some kids are basically raising their hands and saying, I'm in trouble. Someone help me. Like, the first thing that stands out to me is that her grades have significantly dropped from having straight C's last year to this year. The student they're talking about now will call her Daniela to protect her identity. She's failing algebra, science, and English. We have a couple of her teachers, if you all just want to jump in and kind of... I can talk about anything. I can start. She, um, she started off the first nine weeks, I wouldn't say strong, but decent. Um, there was at least effort there. But now it's the middle of the school year, and when Daniela does come to class, she mostly just sits there, doing nothing. She doesn't even bring a backpack. Sounds so uninterested in school, period. That's what she told me. She's like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do anything. I don't, like, just nothing. She just unresponsive. One of the staff members says Daniela covers her mouth a lot. Maybe she has some kind of dental problem. Another says Daniela's clothes are often stained and smelly. I think that there's something going on at home or something not going on at home. So what can they do for Daniela? There aren't obvious answers. They've got other kids with big problems, too. A student who missed a couple of months of school because he apparently hit his mom or maybe stabbed her and was locked up or in some kind of rehab. And another student who's a 17-year-old ninth grader. Just because you can identify who's at risk of dropping out doesn't mean you can figure out what to do about it. What they come up with is tutoring for one student, special ed testing for another, and a home visit for Daniela, the girl with dirty clothes and no backpack. Okay, so I'm going to take you through the back way. We're not on our way to a home visit. The school wouldn't let me. Instead, I'm getting a tour of the neighborhood where Daniela and many of the students at this school live. My guide is Diane Burgess. She's an instructional coach at Booker T. Here we turn it on 10th Street, and this taking you into an area that we call Swamp. One of the first things you notice about Overtown is the big bridge that cuts through the middle of the neighborhood. It's Interstate 95, and under the I-95 bridge are homeless people and drug addicts living in tents, sleeping on the sidewalks. Uh, we, can, we can get out and walk. Okay. We walk through the neighborhood, past housing projects, vacant lots, and a corner store that advertises free ice when you buy liquor. What's up? How are you? Miss Burgess seems good. to know everyone here, even the driver of the bus that passes us. Oh my God! Oh, how are you? Miss Burgess grew up in Overtown. She doesn't live here now because this is the kind of neighborhood people leave once they get an education. On our walk, Miss Burgess points out several places where people in the neighborhood have been shot and killed. And my kids talk about that. They, they see it, they talk it, they talk about it, they come back to school depressed and sad. <laughs> yes, that was a rooster. They're everywhere here in Overtown, just running around on the sidewalks. 
I asked Ms. Burgess why. Uh, what they said about rooster, rooster's supposed to bring you good luck. That's what they say. <laughs> now if you have a rooster in your yard, that's supposed to bring you good fortune. <laughs> I don't know how true that is. but Roosters don't seem to be bringing much luck to this neighborhood. But it wasn't always like this year. Overtown was once a thriving place. This is New Year's Eve, 1955. Black musicians performing on Miami Beach. When they were done, they couldn't stay at the Miami Beach hotels because of segregation. So they stayed in Overtown. And we had five hotels right here. This is Dr. Dorothy Jenkins Fields, an archivist and historian who grew up in Overtown. We're sitting in the visitor center of the historic Lyric Theater, a building in Overtown that Fields helped save from demolition. It's the middle of the afternoon. And about this time of day, we would see uh, Ella Fitzgerald, um, Bojangles, um, Smokey Robinson. They'd be out in the neighborhood when she and her friends got out of school. Fields went to Booker T, class of 1960. You'd see them walking around, going to the restaurants, and there were restaurants here. And not fast food restaurants. These were linen, tablecloths, and, and napkins, and all of that. Uh, and so that you'd stop them in the street and they'd say hello. They'd even visit Booker T, give performances. Nat King Cole gave piano lessons there. Yes, he did. <laughs> it's hard to overestimate how important Booker T. Washington Senior High School was to this community. It was the first public high school for black students in all of South Florida, built in 1926. Kids came from all over to go to Booker T., One teacher told me his great-grandfather, who was apparently a rum runner, brought his granddaughters by boat from Key West every week so they could go to high school. This was a very outstanding school. This is Enid Pinckney, Booker T. graduating class of 1949. People don't understand. They think that because we went to school during the days of segregation that we had an inferior education. But it has not turned out that way for me. It didn't turn out that way for her friend Agnes Morton either, class of 1955. It was expected that we would achieve academic excellence here. And we had extracurricular activities and all the stuff we wanted to. And we were exposed to so many people. Our choir used to sing every year at the Jewish Center. Ms. Morton and Ms. Pinckney tell me Booker T has a school song. You know, so well, how do you sing that's the song? Our, you guys yes. singers? Oh, yeah, this is sing. our school, our, our source of inspiration. They're singing this in the main office of Booker T after school on a Friday. They're dressed all in white because that's what they wear for their reunions. And tonight is their reunion. Booker T has an active alumni association that raises tens of thousands of dollars for college scholarships every year. This school is still the pride of Overtown. (laughs) It's clear from talking to alums that Booker T provided them what they considered a great education, got many of them into college, put them on a solid path to middle-class lives. But by the early 2000s, things had changed. Education researchers labeled Booker T a dropout factory. In 2003, more than 70% of the students at Booker T weren't graduating. Think about that. Ten students started, three of them finished. How did things get so bad at the school? A lot of it has to do with how the neighborhood changed. And those changes began with the construction of I-95. The biggest link in the whole expressway plan is the North-South Expressway. This is from a 1960 television documentary explaining plans to build 95 right through the middle of Overtown. This is the road we've been waiting for, one that will eventually take us all the way from the end of the Sunshine State Parkway down to and through the central business area of Miami. The construction of Interstate 95 was hailed as a great moment of urban renewal. But for many people here, urban renewal was just another name for white people wiping out a black neighborhood. It destroyed the community. This is Dr. Fields again. To make way for 95, thousands of homes and businesses in Overtown were demolished. Silent film footage from 1966 shows the mayor of Miami-Dade County operating the wrecking ball that destroys a building, while dozens of black children watch from a nearby balcony. Another thing that happened in the 1960s? 
desegregation. That meant the middle class in Overtown could leave. And they did. And Booker T., it became a school full of kids from poor families. I'm back at Booker T., and I'm knocking on the office door of the person here who may know as well as anyone what a school is up against when so many of its students live in poverty. My name is Carla Mena, and I work with communities and schools. Remember the Diplomas Now experiment going on at Booker T.? To see if all that predictive data about who's likely to drop out can be used to actually prevent students from quitting? Communities and schools is the third part of that experiment. First part is the research from Johns Hopkins. Second part is the tutoring and mentoring from City Year. Third part, Ms. Mena. Her job is to help students with the things going on in their lives outside of school that can make doing well in school difficult. Okay, so great job with that. I know that you're asking for a bus pass. Ms. Mena can hook students up with things like housing assistance, therapists, and food. Today she's meeting with a 12th grader named Stephanie Lopez. Stephanie is one of her regulars. Have you been able to go see the counselor therapist I recommended? Yeah. Stephanie's got a lot going on in her life. Her family's homeless, living in a motel. Her mom has mental health issues. Her stepdad can be violent. Stephanie wants to go live with a family friend, but... I'm worried about my mom. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know what could happen while I'm gone. She's also worried about her little sister. It's Stephanie who makes sure she gets to school every day. But despite all the stuff going on in her life, Stephanie is doing well in school. First off, I wanted to show her my grades. <laughs> she takes out her report card. Okay, they're fantastic. Everything here is B and A. There's no G's, there's no F. Things weren't always like this. Back in ninth grade, Stephanie was one of those kids starting to light up the early warning indicator system. So she got help as part of Diplomas Now, tutoring from city year and assistance from communities and schools. I asked Stephanie, what are some of the specific ways Miss Mena has helped her? She was able to help me when I was very hungry. She was able to feed me when like, I was in pain. Like, for example, um, having my personal things on the month. She was there to help me. She's talking about tampons. Not being able to afford tampons is the kind of thing that can keep a teenage girl out of school. Ms. Mena's office is full of stuff that kids in poverty need. Donated school supplies, backpacks, shampoo, even sunglasses. And on the wall of her office, a big poster that says, don't stop until you graduate. I asked Stephanie what's kept her going in school. Because what I ever wanted is to be happy. And she says she's learned that to be happy, you have to get an education. <laughs> get an education because if you're not, then you're like set back and you're just going to be like any type of person who's living under a bridge. And I don't want that. Stephanie will be graduating next month. Her plan is to go to college and become an occupational therapist. She's one of the students the Diplomas Now program seems to have helped. But it hasn't helped everyone. I'm Brick McMenna. I used to go to Booger T. Washington Senior High School. Bricknick's one of the students who didn't make it, despite the efforts of Diplomas Now. The guy who introduced me to Bricknick is Derek Moore. He ran the Diplomas Now program at Booker T for nearly five years before being moved to another Miami high school. I meet up with him and Bricknick at Booker T. We walk the halls. Bricknick says hello to a few of her former teachers. Then we head to Mr. Moore's old office for a quiet place to talk. He used to always make sure I was in school. <laughs> in a way, it did motivate me to come. But it, it, school was a little bit too overwhelming, especially at that time period. Bricknick tells me she was kicked out of Booker T last year when she was 16 because she had basically stopped coming to school. I ask why, but Bricknick seems reluctant to talk much about her own situation. Instead, she talks in generalities about the challenges kids in her community face. Finally, Mr. Moore nudges her to be more specific. Talk, talk about some, 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 some personal thing. I know you, you know, just... I don't want to get too personal. No, I mean, it's all good. Yeah, it's just, I just want to give a, a real snapshot, a real picture okay, so, of, 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 you know, what it, what it's really like, what it is, what you experience on a day-to-day basis, some of the things at home that might have, or in the community that you might have seen that might have, you know, not have been, might not have been so supportive of education or, you know... Still a bit reluctant, Bricknick begins talking about all the people she's known who've been killed. Mr. Moore asks her to talk about one death in particular, her friend Izzy. And how, how did that affect you? Because you were still in school. You were still coming to school at that time. Izzy died. You know, Izzy. 
So talk a little bit about that. What happened necessarily, I mean, but how it affected you. Or, you know, oh, just not wanting to be there, just rebelling, not wanting to be in class. It, it affects all of that. You just don't want to be coped down. When you're going through all these things and all these emotions that you don't necessarily don't know how to, you don't know how to handle it. And you're still a child. You're 15, 14. We're still growing. We're still, you know, in the process of life. And we're going through all these things and we don't know how to cope with it. And we don't understand what to do. Bricknick says she hasn't given up on education. She was taking a GED class, but a few months ago, she stopped going because she got shot in the leg. She still has a limp. Despite that, Bricknick actually walked more than a mile to the school for our interview today. To spare her the walk home, Mr. Moore offers to give her a ride. We get in the car and drive to Little Havana, a neighborhood next to Overtown where Bricknick and many Booker T students live. As we drive, Bricknick points out all the drug dealers on the streets and the attics. Several of them are white. They're the only white people I see here. All righty, it was a pleasure meeting you again. Thank safe. you. We get to Bricknick's apartment, where she lives with her mom, her sister, and her brothers. Follow at me. Hi, Mr. Moore. All right. As Derek Moore and I drive back to Booker T, I ask him whether he thinks the school failed Bricknick. He says there's only so much schools can do. He thinks people outside schools need to start taking more responsibility for what's going on in poor communities. It's bigger than just the schools. It's bigger than just those individuals who are, you know, calling the shots from an educational perspective. I think it's this the local government, our commissioners in this area, um, people who can ultimately affect the communities. They they something needs to be done from their, you know, from their end. When Mr. Moore and I get back to Booker T. He gets a text that underscores his point. It's from Bricknick. The text says that right after we dropped her off at home, her mother told her the family was being evicted. She doesn't know where they're going to go. The Diplomas Now experiment at Booker T is over. It was a five-year program that just ended. There were dozens of other high-poverty schools involved in the experiment, and researchers are still collecting and analyzing data. The evidence so far is mixed. It suggests that Diplomas Now did have an impact on the number of students in a school who ended up having none of those early warning indicators that predicted they would drop out. In other words, students in the Diplomas Now schools were less likely than students in similar schools to get off track when it came to their absences, their behavior, and their course performance. But the Diplomas Now program, according to the data so far, did not seem to have an impact on students who came into high school already in trouble. In other words, if a student started high school already behind academically, already with behavior issues, already with a history of chronic absenteeism, the Diplomas Now program didn't seem to help them get back on track. So what does help those students? And how do you help kids who have already dropped out? Those are questions we tackle next. You're listening to an APM Reports documentary, What It Takes, Chasing Graduation at High Poverty High Schools. I'm Stephen Smith. And I'm Emily Hanford. As we told you at the beginning of this program, there's been a big rise in the number of schools like Booker T, schools where the majority of students are from low-income families. And the students who go to these schools are mostly kids of color. Nearly half of all Black and Hispanic students in the United States go to a high-poverty school. In contrast, only 8% of white students are in schools where most of their classmates are low-income. This systemic isolation of students by race and class is a huge obstacle when it comes to closing educational achievement gaps. Research shows the percentage of a student's schoolmates who are poor is a strong predictor of academic achievement, even after accounting for a child's own family income and socioeconomic status. America once tried to close achievement gaps by desegregating public schools, but the country has largely turned its back on desegregation. Public schools in the United States are more racially segregated now than they were in the 1970s. And the percentage of schools where almost all of the students are black or Hispanic and poor has nearly doubled in the past 15 years. From American Public Media, this is an APM Reports documentary, What It Takes, Chasing Graduation at High Poverty High Schools. I'm Stephen Smith. And I'm Emily Hanford. It's early morning again, but this time I'm in Pasadena, California, and I'm getting into a purple car with this guy. I am Dominic Corey, a chaser at Learning Works Charter School, and we're getting ready to go out and go chase these students to come to school today. The first student on the list for pickup this morning is Brian. 20 years old, I think, like 20 years old. 
tattoos on his head and stuff like that. But he lives in his enemy territory. So he doesn't catch the bus because he could get killed catching the bus trying to come to school. All right. Hi, Brian. I'm Emily. The next student on our list is Mario. He hasn't been in maybe like three weeks. Um, he'll come in regularly, then he'll fall off the face of the earth and come back in. And last year with Mario, I had leverage because he was on probation. Coming to school was a condition of his probation. But now that he's off, it's hard to motivate him. Mario gets in the car. What are you going into school to do today? Uh, do some work, probably some algebra, a little bit of literature. After we get Mario, it's Kenneth. We're at Kenneth's house. He's supposed to be outside, but he's not, so Dominic calls. A woman answers, and when Dominic says he's here to bring Kenneth to school, she sounds thrilled, sends Kenneth out. Kenneth just started at Learning Works two weeks ago. He's 18, says he hadn't been in school for two years. So you think this is going to work for you? This go? Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of credits to go, but I think so. How much longer do you think you need to do? I need like maybe 150 credits. And what, So that's a lot. Mm-hmm. You need 180 total, right? Yeah. If Kenneth went to a traditional high school, he'd be at least 21 by the time he could graduate. And frankly, a traditional high school doesn't want a student like Kenneth. Too much of a chance you'll enroll him, he'll quit, and that'll count against your graduation rate. But Learning Works is all about students like Kenneth. And that's the one thing about Learning Works. We take everybody. And we're going to do whatever it's going to take to get them to graduate. Whatever it's going to take. Emily, Dominic, and the students have arrived at Learning Works. Dominic parks the purple chaser mobile next to another purple chaser mobile. On the back of each car in big white letters, it says high school dropout, and there's the school phone number. Learning Works was started 10 years ago by an education researcher named Michael Aron. Okay, well, why I started the school is because traditional systems can't really work with dropouts. She was seeing it in her research, the graduation rate going up, but this stubborn 20 or 30 percent of students who weren't finishing. We've created a system for the masses, and we don't know what to do with the fringes. Learning Works is a public charter school specially made for the students that traditional high school doesn't work for. Like at Booker T, virtually all of the students are kids of color from low-income families. And while the students at Learning Works may in some ways represent the fringes, the challenges they face are challenges a growing number of low-income kids in America confront every day. Emily continues our story. First, I want to talk about the word dropout. It's written on those purple chaser cars. Researchers and policymakers use it all the time. But ask the students at Learning Works what they think of that word. I don't like the term dropout. That's Marcus Snyder. I don't like it. This is Kamari Walker. It just seems like no hope for the student. That's kind of like what that word means to me. So I'm not going to use it anymore. Partly because the kids don't like it, but also because it's not really accurate. Makes it sound like some kind of decision kids make when it's really more of a process that begins in middle school or even earlier. Plus, a lot of students get kicked out. That's what Kamari says happened to him. I um, had all bad grades and just talking crap to all the teachers and starting fights with other students and just being a class clown. Looking back, he thinks he probably deserved to be expelled. Other students at Learning Works told me they don't blame schools for getting rid of them either. But also, they say traditional schools didn't give them what they needed. Here's Roberto Guerra. Um, when I was in regular school, I never met my counselor. No one ever asked me how my day was going. No one asked, asked me if I was hungry or if my home situation was okay. No one asked. No one cared. And here, it's not like that. When you walk in, everyone's saying hi to you. Everyone's shaking your hand. Everyone's, hey, how you been? Everyone's asking questions. Yeah. You look gorgeous. Hi, guys. And that's why it works, because you're not just walking alone. And Michaela, what are you working on? We're out learning works in what's known as the warehouse. It's a big open space with tables. At the end of each table is a teacher's desk. Every student is assigned a teacher, and every teacher has a chaser. The chasers and stuff, they're also worth ups. I'm sorry, excuse my language. This is a student named Bethany Martinez. She's talking about the fact that the chasers here, all of them quit high school or got kicked out or went to jail or otherwise didn't make it in a traditional school. So they understand us, you know, like they know where we're from. They know how, like... We are, and they know, like, our situations, you know what I mean? So it's like they want us to be something, and they believe in us. And people like us, like the kids here, we need that. We don't have really anything. Like, when we're on the streets, it's just us. But when we're here, it's all of us. 
morning, Perla. Bethany's chaser is Roberto. You heard him a moment ago, talking about what regular school was like for him. Roberto is a Learning Works graduate. The teacher he chases for is Ruth Richardson. Each student that comes in, we, we're going to find a way to love them. And these students were not loved anywhere else. Hey, is anybody new to the class today? Here's how this place works. Each teacher has about 30 students, works with them one-on-one in English, social studies, whatever subjects the student needs. Students also have to attend some actual classes. Each teacher specializes in a few subject areas. Ruth does art, math, and physics. You guys all see this? It's a magnet. These are coils of wire. And this measures electricity. We're in a back corner of the warehouse. There's a whiteboard and a few tables strewn with physics textbooks. There were 10 students here when class started. Then a couple of chaser mobiles arrived, and now there are 16 students. Late like that in a traditional school, and you're in trouble. But this school is all about flexibility. If they don't show up for three weeks, we can still put an intense week in and get them caught up. Learning Works is not about requiring students to sit in their seats for a certain amount of time every day. It's about helping students get the work done when they can, how they can. Okay, so this, oh, and that's module five. I love it when module fives get done. Ruth is back at her desk. A small crowd of students surrounds her. There are about 400 of them enrolled at this school. That includes students at a second Learning Works location in L.A. On any given day, maybe a third of the students show up. Students work their way through modules. Each module is akin to a credit. For each module, you do some reading, some work in a textbook, attend a certain number of classes. You might also have a science lab or a field trip. There are lots of field trips here, to the theater, museums, the zoo, places kids in poverty almost never go. At the end of each module, students do some kind of project. And what do you think the government should do about Satan worshipers? I don't know. They could do whatever they want. Right. I mean, but, but is it, if, it, if freedom of religion applies to Catholics, if it This is Ruth working with a student on a project about the First Amendment. The student has to come up with questions and then poll his peers about their beliefs. So to think of two more questions. Learning Works exists by virtue of a provision in California law that allows students to do something called independent study. That provision was not at all designed for the students who are here. Founder Michael Aron says it was designed for actors, actresses, people who are sick in the hospital. In other words, students whose schedules or life circumstances make traditional school impossible. Well, for kids in poverty, traditional school can be impossible too. Take this student. <laughs> I am Viridiana Mendez. Vidi for short. She works full-time in a restaurant. Her schedule changes a lot. And she has to work. Her parents left the country when she was 14. I do miss them, and it's hard. It's hard to, like, grow up without someone being there with you. She lives with her brothers. Her parents are in Mexico. They're trying to return to the United States. One of the reasons Vidi works so much, she's helping to pay for her parents' immigration lawyer. Well, my name's Edward Lugo. Edward is another student who couldn't make it in traditional school. Uh, I've been going to Learning Works for about, like, four years now, going on five. Edward is 19, determined to get a high school diploma before he turns 20. He lives with his great-grandma, but she can't provide much more than a place to live. I earn everything I get on my own. Like, I don't, no one buys me my laundry soap, no one does my laundry, no one, you know, it's like I'm, I'm an adult now. I have to support myself in every single way. And another student whose life just didn't fit with traditional school? Well, I'm Anna Laura LeQuinn, a future graduate. Anna's mother left her when she was a baby, like left her home alone as an infant. Social services took over. Anna's been in foster homes, the juvenile justice system, and lots of schools. So how many schools have you been to? Like 20, 30. 20 or 30 schools? Like 30, yeah. Anna's goal is to go to college and study psychology. Before she came to Learning Works, she says she didn't think much about her future. But she says this place has taught her to care. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Like, it gave me hope. Like, like before I came here, I had no purpose. Now I have a purpose. Students at Learning Works come from schools all over the Los Angeles metropolitan area, including really good schools like the ones here in affluent Pasadena. One of the reasons Michael Arant started Learning Works is that she was so pissed off that high schools let so many students fall through the cracks. But what she's learned is that traditional schools really can't give kids in poverty what they need. Like, regular school districts don't do 24-7. Like, how would that work? But 24-7 is what Learning Works is all about. 
Chasers show up at students' homes when they're being evicted, when their boyfriend hits them, when their cousin gets shot. Chasers also take students to doctor's appointments, drive them to job interviews, bring them their schoolwork when they're sick. All things middle-class parents do for their kids all the time. But if there's one thing almost all of the students here have in common, it's this. Their parents are not very involved in their lives. Parents might literally be missing. They're in prison or deported or dead. They might be working two or three jobs. Or they might not be there emotionally because of their own troubled childhoods or addiction or mental illness or just the stress of poverty. I hate living with my mom. It's just nothing but just negativity when I go on. This is Kamari again, the student who thought he deserved to be kicked out of school. When I ask him about his mom, he shifts around in his chair and clears his throat a lot. But it's kind of hard going back home <clears throat> and hearing, like, stuff. Just, like, arguing, like, all the time and self-doubt. Like, when I go home, I feel self-doubt all the time, and I just... Kamari pauses and says something that I've thought about so many times since. Mother is just a title, I guess. That's what I've learned. Mother is just a title. And that's all I see her as, is just a person with just the title of a mother. Kamari says when you don't get support at home, plus you don't always know where your next meal is coming from, you end up feeling hopeless. It's hard to find hope when there's like no, when there's like no hope sitting at the table. And I think that's why a lot of kids don't graduate because they just give up and they think that maybe I was meant for like a bad life or maybe I was meant to be a gang member or maybe I was meant to like not go to school or go to college because my family members didn't so maybe that's why a lot of kids um didn't want to graduate but I don't know everybody has their story <laughs> so just to be x squared my yeah minus b or we're back in the warehouse again where Edward is working with a tutor. Edward's the student who lives with his great-grandma, determined to graduate this year, but having a hard time getting through his final math credits. That's a difference of squares, and that'll always, it'll always be like... Okay, what, where am I going to use this in my life? Um, you're going to use it in a 10, 11, and 12. <laughs> this is the kind of question teachers everywhere get asked all the time. Why do I need to learn this? It can be a tough one to answer. But here's the thing. If you're a kid in an educated family, in a good school, in a middle-class neighborhood, you see the benefits of education all around you. It may be hard to figure out exactly why you need to learn this formula or that equation, but the whole enterprise generally adds up. Do well in school, and it leads to a better life. But when you're struggling to survive, having to master something like the difference of squares, it can just feel so irrelevant. We got rent due, we got lights to pay, we got real life issues going on, then your AX plus B equals MC, you know, like none of that means anything. Like basic math can get you by in the streets. You just need to know how to count your money. This is Carlos Cruz. He was one of founder Michael Aran's first graduates. Do you think you could have made it through traditional high school eventually? Yeah, if, if Michael was my mom, yeah, <laughs> of course I'd be at the at Harvard right now, if I had two parents that were, you know, educated and, you know, it, it, it's the part, you, you are a product of your environment. That, that statement doesn't get any realer. Yes? Do you want lunch? What is that? It's soup. This is Kamari again. Yes. I'm with him in the storage room at Learning Works that doubles as the library and the snack bar. Um, can I get a Gatorade or whatever? Powery. Yeah, Powery. What color? A blue one. Kamari graduated from Learning Works last year, wasn't ready to completely leave this place, so he got this job running the snack bar. In between customers, he's working on a paper for his college English class. Kamari is in his second semester at Pasadena Community College. First time I met him, several months ago, he had just started college, and things weren't going that well. Here he is, back then. Like, a lot of people were trying to force me to go to college after I graduated. Um... I just thought that college wasn't for me. I still think college isn't for me, even though I'm going there. He was taking an African-American history class, and it was really hard. He had just dropped it. The way that the professor was talking, he was talking like words I didn't even understand. He says he felt stupid. But this semester, things are going better, much better. So do you feel like you're, you're though, on your way to learn, like, would you be able to take that class again oh, in a yeah. couple of years? Next semester, I'm taking that class again. 
Yeah, because I've actually learned some new words, so I think I would be okay in that class. So. It would be ideal to get every Learning Works graduate to go to college like Kamari. When it comes to getting on a path to a middle-class life, post-secondary education is where it's at. In the United States, 45% of people born into poverty remain in poverty. But with a college degree, that rate plummets to 16%. Michael Aran says she originally thought all of her graduates would go on to higher education. She's come to the conclusion, though, that it may not be realistic for everyone. And she's learned to measure success in other ways. She brings up the example of one of her first students, Brian. He had every problem, every challenge, but he got a high school diploma. Someone like Brian isn't dead and isn't serving life. That was not where we were at 15 years old. I never would have thought those words would have even come out of my mouth. What words? That he's not dead, he's not in jail, and that's great. Quiet on set, quiet on set. We're going live. This is Dominic Corey again. He's kidding around with his fellow chasers as they get ready to do their alumni survey. Every year, they call all of their graduates to see how they're doing. Twin, what up? This is Dominic. What up, man? How you been? The chasers ask their graduates a series of questions. Are you working on government assistance? Do you own a car? The school tallies up the responses, and the data show that more than 60% of Learning Works graduates are working, most of them full-time. 10% report receiving government assistance, and just 3% are in prison, even though about a third were involved in the criminal justice system at some point while they were students. There's no way to calculate an official graduation rate the way traditional high schools do, so it's hard to know exactly how effective Learning Works is on that count. There are certainly kids who start here and don't make it. But the students who do finish, several of them told me that without this school, they're pretty sure they would have never gotten a high school diploma. Good evening, good evening, good evening. I want to welcome everybody to Learning Works Charter School 2016 graduation. There are 66 students graduating today. Their caps and gowns are purple, just like the chaser mobiles. Among the graduates is Edward Lugo. He made it through his final math credits and is getting his diploma just a few weeks shy of his 20th birthday. Another graduate, Anna Liquin, the student who went to 30 schools before finding Learning Works. Someone who had hoped to be here today but hasn't quite completed enough credits yet is Vidi Mendez. She's the student who was working to pay for her parents' immigration lawyer. The big news with Vidi is that she's living with her parents again. They're back from Mexico. And Vidi expects to be ready to graduate in a few months. Okay, bear with me. And one of the students we met earlier is a speaker at today's graduation, Bethany Martinez, the one who was talking about how important the chasers are because they understand what life is like for kids like her. Friends, chasers, teachers, and families. We are finally graduating. Can you guys believe it? A few months ago, it was not at all clear Bethany was going to make it to this stage today. She wasn't coming to school much, had some housing issues, some problems with her boyfriend, and then she found out she was pregnant. Her baby girl is due next month. (laughs) A lot of my own friends and family doubted me. I didn't think I could walk across this stage ever. But with the help of my nagging chaser, Rob, and favorite teacher, Ruth, they made this day possible. You made me believe that I will graduate. Really, I had no choice. You guys never left me alone. So as much as I complained about it, thank you. Learning Works founder Michael Aran says she's often asked if she'd be willing to open up more schools. She says no, it's just not something she personally wants to do. She does think some elements of the model could be copied, the chasers, the flexible scheduling. She points out that it doesn't cost more to run a school like Learning Works. You just have to use money differently, chasers instead of a football team, for example. Learning Works does do some outside fundraising, roughly $100,000 a year, to pay for things like shoes for homeless students and even funerals for students who are killed. There could be more schools like Learning Works. You just have to find people willing to make them happen. Once again, congratulations, class of 2016. Everybody stand up. Parents, meet them outside. <laughs>
Congratulations, you guys are done. Follow out, follow out. I've been working hard so long. Seems like pain has been my only friend. There are educators and researchers who say the best solution for some kids in poverty might be a boarding school of some kind to get them away from their troubled neighborhoods. Students at Learning Works have been known to crash on their teachers' couches when they needed a safe place to stay. And Michael Aran often has at least one student living with her and her husband and two children. Stability, support, a family that can provide, those are the most basic things that every kid needs. And without those things, succeeding in school can be really, really hard. You've been listening to What It Takes, Chasing Graduation at High Poverty High Schools from APM Reports. It was produced by Emily Hanford and edited by Katherine Winter. The web editor is Dave Peters, web producer Andy Cruz. Research and production help from Alex Bumhart and Lila Cherneff. Mixing by Craig Thorson. Special thanks to Liz Lyon, Dylan Piers-McCoy, and the Wolfson Archives at Miami-Dade College. The APM Reports team includes Ryan Katz, Samara Freemark, Suzanne Pico, Sasha Eslanian, Ellen Gettler, Chris Worthington, and me, Stephen Smith. We have more about this story on our website, apmreports.org. You can find data on the growth of high poverty schools and see photos of the students and chasers at LearningWorks. It's all at apmreports.org. While you're there, you can sign up for Educate, our weekly education podcast. We are on Facebook and on Twitter, where our handle is at Educate Podcast, one word. We'd like to know what this program made you think about. Contact information is at our website, or write us a review on iTunes. That will help other people find our work. Support for this program comes from the Spencer Foundation, Lumina Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's American Graduate Project. A note of disclosure, the Spencer Foundation supported some of the research referred to in this program, but the foundation had no influence on our coverage. This is APM, American Public Media.